Anybody see Tom Daly do the swimming? Did you? How many? People, we're all watching it, are we? The dive. Well, dive and swim. You know, the diving. The diving. Did you see the interview with him afterwards? That, did he win? He came third. That's, that's a good win. The, the interview with him afterwards. They asked him what he felt like on top of the diving board. How many of you have been up the top of one of those diving boards? They're really high, aren't they? I mean, they're scary. Have you seen the? The, the Mr. Bean sketch of that when he gets to the top of the diamond one and then comes back again. It's like, I, I'm with him. I'm thinking, that is just a dangerous place to stand. And those guys get up the top there and then they do handstands on the edge of the diving board, 10 meters above the water, which is just so hard when you hit it, isn't it? So, quite extraordinary. But they interviewed Tom Daly afterwards and, and uh, uh, they said, what did you feel like when you got up there and he said what he said when you get to that point he said it's either do or die that's what he said is in he said you just got to go for it you have to just put your all uh, into it okay we're looking at nehemiah and uh, that is relevant to what we're looking at and um uh, listen to me listen to this uh, reading from nehemiah chapter two it says this Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine, and I never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified, but I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad, for the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire? The king asked, well, how can I help you? Well, with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please the king and you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, how long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I'd be gone, the king agreed to my request. I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province of the west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Ashaf, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress for the city walls and for a house for myself. And the king granted me these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent along an army, army officers and horsemen to protect me. But when Sambalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Amorite officials, heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. So I arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, I slipped out during the night taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. After dark, I went through the valley gate, put put past the jackal's well and over the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So though it was still dark, I went up the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know I'd been out there or what I'd been doing, for I'd not yet said anything to anybody about my plans. I'd not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. 
But now I said to them, you know very well what troubles we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about my, how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked. I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall. But you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. He says, we know full well, you know full well the ruins that our city lies in. He said, but let's rebuild the walls. You know, the Old Testament is rich in uh, some most remarkable characters. And none is more remarkable, I don't think, than Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man who was remarkable in many ways. And uh, as I begin this evening, I just want to give you a little bit of background on this story about Nehemiah from the Bible to set it in its context. Uh, There's not much known about him. Most people, when you quote him, quote one of those uh, poor jokes in the Bible. Who's the shortest man in the Bible? The answer is Nehemiah. He's the one who's the shortest man in the Bible. It's like, who's the largest woman in the Bible? It's the woman of Samaria. In, uh, no, you didn't get that one. Okay, well, there's a short man and there's a large woman in the Bible. Um, okay, we are in, we're in 856 BC. Israel's capital city at that time was overrun by the Babylonians, one of the greatest empires of uh, ancient Middle East. And uh, they set the city itself on fire. Its walls were breached, its houses were leveled to the ground. The temple, Solomon's great achievement, was reduced to smoking rubble. A large part of the Jewish population was transported in exile to Babylonia, and just a mere small remnant remained itself in uh, the city. The glory of that was Israel had perished. Everything that had been built, everything that had been achieved, everything that had been promised had been torn down. Now you know full well, don't you, the, the general theme of the story of the Bible, the way in which God uh, used people throughout Scripture. When, when people were were being true and following God in their lives, God was with them and all was going well. The trouble is so often when all is going well, people forget God. We're we're good at crying out to him in the difficult times, but when all is going well, we can forget him. And this, the story of the Old Testament is is, is a, a story that's repeated in so many people's lives. When we're in trouble, we call out to God. God comes and our lives are put back on track. Things get back on course again. Things go well, and when they go well, we forget God. And when we forget God, we God doesn't interfere in our lives. He allows us, because the gift of free will is one of the greatest gifts that he gives us, he allows us to go our own way. And our lives take a tumble again, and when we're taking a tumble, 
in the Old Testament, you get the prophets come again and again, and they say, God says, return to me. God says, return to me. God says, return to me. And, and when they go, oh, we need to return to the Lord, normally when people have hit rock bottom again, we need to return to God, then they start coming back to God. And, and the prophets only come when people have uh, uh, distanced themselves from God. They've distanced themselves from uh, the one who uh, wants them, wants them to achieve their potential, the one that has the best in store for them. That's true of all of us as well, you know. So often true in our lives. When things are going badly in our lives, we can easily call out to God. In fact, people are quick to blame God when things go wrong. Oh, it's all gone wrong, God, you know. I was doing okay, and then it's gone wrong. And, and God may say, well, you, you know, you, you sort of ignored me the last 20 years. You didn't invite me in to be part of this. You didn't include me uh, in your life. And here, the people of God, they abandon God. They abandon God and God says, I'll let you go your own way. And, and, and those of you who are reading the Bible in a year with us, you'll know that actually this reading tonight is part of today's reading that we've done today. And, and the, um, the story of, that got to this point where Jerusalem's walls are torn down, where the temple's been raised to the ground, where the, the, the homes have been leveled, where everything's left as this, this smoking, rubbled building site is because people abandoned God. They chose to go their own way. And God said, if, if you want to go your own way, I'll let you go your own way. Because the greatest gift he gives us is the gift of free will. The gift ourselves to choose between right and wrong. The gift ourselves to choose between God's way and our way. So the glory that was Israel had perished. But later developments in the power politics of the Middle East also brought about a change in circumstances. Babylonia, uh, in its turn, was overrun by Persia, and the Persians were prepared to contemplate some recovery of the Jewish state. And uh, if you uh, read um, Prophet Jeremiah, you'll see in the Prophet Jeremiah in, in uh, chapter 12, you'll see in chapter 12 there's this uh, promise um, of uh, the, the 70 years of exile and then a returning to God again. And, and that links with Daniel, Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel falling down on his knees in prayer and realizing from Jeremiah the prophet that there was going to be these 70 years and now there was the 70 years and all of a sudden God's going to uh, re restore the people back to uh, Israel again, restore the people back to Jerusalem. And, and Nehemiah is part of that story of God's story. Wherever people go, however far from God they abandon him, God's covenant with us says, I'm always with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm always there with you. It's just whether you choose to look to me or not. And so uh, they're able to think about rebuilding the city um, again. And uh, all that was required was a leader. A leader with uh, 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 in something like the character of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was just that leader. He was the one that said, I'll do it. I'll do it. So he approaches, he approaches uh, the king. 
And um, uh, it, it, I should say that um, it's, a, it's a really funny verse here. He says that I'd never before appeared sad in the king's presence. It says in the beginning of this chapter. And you read that and you think, well, that's a bit bizarre, isn't it? If you are sad, you're sad. Um, but uh, the commentators say, uh, in those days, if you appeared sad before the king, you'd be executed. He didn't want sad people around him. He just wanted happy people. That's like a, a false world in which they lived, obviously, then. But if you were sad, you were executed. So he comes to the king sad. This is part of his story. This is He comes in fear and trembling, it says, sad. And the king says to him, why are you looking sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. He says, then I was terrified, he says. Then I was terrified. It got to this point where the king had noticed Nehemiah's sadness. But I replied, long live live the king, (laughs) in the hope you don't execute me. Long live the king. How can I not be sad, though, for the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king asked, well, how can I help you? And with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, well, if it will please the king, and if you're pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. And the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, well, how long will you be gone? When will you return? And after I told him how long I'd be gone, the king agreed to my request. The king approves the request that Nehemiah put to him, and he lets him go. And the story of Nehemiah that he continues to tell, he tells of the traveling and how he rallies the people, and he begins to rebuild the, 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 the city of Jerusalem. The story is one that I believe can help us to understand the kind of character God would like us to embrace as people of faith. He's looking for people like Nehemiah. He's always, if you look through the Old Testament, if you look through the Bible, he's looking for people who will say, yes, I'll, I'll stand up and be counted. Yes, I'll, I'll do it. I'll put myself forward. Uh, please include me in that. Uh, I'll be one who will be used by you. So I want to think this evening just very briefly about five characteristics that I think come out of this story that are really important. And the first characteristic of Nehemiah that emerges from his story is his burning sense of responsibility. It's a, it, it, it's a, sen- it's a sense of something's got to be done. Scholars aren't exactly sure what being a cupbearer to the king of Ber- Persia involved, um, uh, but it was... Uh, It it probably involved tasting any wine or food before the king tasted it, just in case it was poisoned. Um, It was, they're pretty sure that it was a senior position, likely to be a position of um, honor and uh, comfort. And yet Nehemiah was prepared to let his position go to help his people. The city that he uh, lamented, the city that lies in waste with its gates destroyed. Nehemiah's character had this burning sense of responsibility. He came forward to say, I'll do something about it. If, if there's an issue, if there's something he's dealing with, if there's, if there's a need that needs serving, I'll, I'll put myself forward. I'll be the one that will volunteer for that. 
Apparently Florence Nightingale's motto, you can find these things if you look them up on Google, but her personal motto was said to be this, Lord, here I am, send me. Isaiah 6, of course. That was her motto. And it seems to me that is Nehemiah's life motto as well. Here I am, send me. Here I am, use me. In whatever way, shape, or you need possible to use me, use me. Here I am, send me. And with Nehemiah, it seems that he takes on responsibility for the walls to be rebuilt. In other words, he chose to let the buck stop with him. He chose to say, I'll do something about it. We can always think it's somebody else's responsibility, can't we? That's so easy to do that in life. Well, that's someone else's responsibility. We can walk past a bit of litter on the floor and we there's someone else's responsibility to pick that up. Rather than go, I'll pick it up. So there's always somebody else. We often think that, just subconsciously. Well, that's someone else's job. That's some, someone else will do that. Nehemiah wasn't someone like that. He was someone who said, I'll do something about this. The buck stops uh, with me. The buck stops here. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was one of the great personalities of the 18th century. And it's recorded that late on a hot July night in 1865, he burst into his home. He'd just been walking through some of the poorest streets of London, looking at the horror of the Victorian era. And he cried out to his wife, Catherine, he says, Darling, I found my destiny. I've seen the horror. I've seen what needs doing. I'm going to do something about it. Here I am, send me. It's not, it's, they're, they're not my people, I'm not in charge of them, I've got nothing to do with them, but I see a need, I'll step into it. I see something needs doing, I'll do it. It stops, starts with me. Um, uh, the reason I use that clip from Star Wars, that little Yoda, a creature, he tells uh, Luke Skywalker, uh, the Jedi Knight, who's in training, and he's, he's ready to give up. Oh, you probably didn't really... Notice at the end, but he's ready to give up. It's like, you can, uh, he's, to try and lift that ship out of the water, you know. And he says, I'll try. And, 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 uh, um, Yoda says to him, try. There's no such thing as try. You either do it or you don't. You either step into it or you don't. There's no such thing as try. You've got to do it. Tom Daly at the top of the diving board. You either dive or you don't. You either go down the steps or you go down that way. But whichever way you go, you go one way. There's no such thing as try. You've just got to do one, one or the other. You either choose to step into your destiny or not. And, 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 and that's true for all of us. I wonder what there is that God is calling you to do. I, I, I can do nothing about it, you might say. I'm too busy. I'm too old. I'm too ill. I'm too preoccupied with one thing or another, I'm not here enough, there's, there's, there's nothing I can do about it. Well, do you know, there's something all of us can do about something in life. We've all got to step up to the mark. We've all got to choose to do something. Um, I'm probably not the only person, I bet there are others here, who have watched the Olympics and thought, 
I'd love to be able to run like that, or to row like that, or to cycle. Anybody else ever thought like that as you've watched it? Yeah, be honest, come on, a few other hands up. Yeah, yeah. Of course, we can't because we haven't done the training. They've, they've said, I'm going to get there in four years' time, four years ago. We've sat on our sofas watching them with a glass of wine in our hands going, oh, I think I could have done that. But we didn't take the decision four years ago to do it. Actually, if I had taken the decision four years ago, I still wouldn't have been able to do it. But, but the, the, the point is, they took a decision. I'm going to do this. And they worked towards it. They didn't find an excuse. Have you a dream? What's your dream, I wonder? Is there a tugging at your heart? Is there a cause or a calling that claims your concern? What is it? What is it that beats in your heart? My friend Ray Elliott, who's on the staff here, what beats in his heart is the need to reach out to people in prison. And when it beat in his heart the first time he heard it, he was at the New Wine Summer Conference, I think it was the first time he came, and then he's never been since, because every summer he's in the prison. But he came once, and God put something in his heart, and he said, this is what I'm here for. And he's lived his life for that ever since the last 17 years. This is what I'm here for. God's told me it's what I'm here for, I'm going to do it. What is the cause? What's the concern? What's the calling that God's put in your heart? We can, we can find all sorts of excuses. We can find all sorts of other things to do. But God will have put something there. And you know, if you start working on it now, in four years' time, you'll look back and go, I'm so glad I took that decision. Or in four years' time, you could sit on your sofa with a glass of wine going, Someone really ought to do something about so-and-so. I think God's looking for Nehemiahs. He's looking for people who'll go, I'll step up. I see there's a need. I'll step into it. What cause or mission are you willing to fly a banner for? God, it would seem, has made us so that we can respond to a cause. Are you doing that for Jesus Christ? So that's the first thing. The second characteristic that emerges from this story is Nehemiah's vigorous sense of concern. He absolutely cared. He cared about his people. He cared about the people who were buried there. He cared about those who still lived there. He had this real care. He wasn't doing it for himself. He was doing it because he cared about others. When one of his brothers, Hananiah, arrived with some of the other Jews, there were some others from Judea, Nehemiah questioned them about Jerusalem, about the Jews who remained there. And they told him about those remaining who'd survived captivity, who were facing trouble and adversity. They said, the walls of Jerusalem have been broken down, the gates have been destroyed. And so when Nehemiah heard this, he sat down and he wept and he prayed. He sat down and he wept And he prayed for God to hear him. Like the psalmist, many of us like Nehemiah, we need to pray, Lord, hear my prayer. Let my cry for help reach you. If we have something on our hearts, 
for a particular group, for a particular cause, for a particular ministry. That's the thing we need to bring again and again in prayer to God. Lord, hear my cry for these people. Hear my prayer for these people. Hear hear my fasting for these people. It's not something we need to involve everybody in, but I'm going to do it. Notice Nehemiah, Nehemiah retreated for about four months just praying and fasting. Obviously still doing his work. Obviously still looking happy during that time. He didn't get sad till chapter two, but he was still looking happy when he was praying and fasting. But, but within him was a sadness. Within him was a brokenness. And in that brokenness, in that humility, in that coming before God, for the people he cared for, God spoke to him and put a plan in his heart. The second characteristic is his sense of concern and care. The third characteristic is is that Nehemiah had a realism about his faith. What I mean is that Nehemiah was a person of prayer, but he was clearly a person of action. He combined faith and prayer with hard work and painstaking organization. He enabled everybody to get involved in the rebuilding of those walls. Nehemiah's formula for discovering God's way seems to be this. Faith plus prayer equals action. Faith plus prayer equals action. Yeah, I I was... uh, I sit with one of my uh, little sons, and, and, and we do. I've only got one little son, actually. I sit with little Josiah, and we do maths together. And I'm always saying, what's the formula? Because if you know the formula, you get the answer. If you don't know the formula, we stumble around in the dark. Let's get the formula. If you know the formula, you get the answer. So hint to anybody doing exam. No, done exams, haven't we? A-level results this week. Oh, yeah, nervous time. But... It, but But here's his formula. Faith plus prayer equals action. What did it result in? It resulted in ultimately the walls being rebuilt. In um, uh, chapter 4, which will be uh, spoken on in a few weeks' time, but we see that characteristic put out memorably in the way in which he... um, organized the people so they had threats from people outside and he says well we're not going to stop rebuilding he says you'll build with one hand and you'll have a sword in your hand (laughs) by your side with the other hand he says so we'll we'll do it he posted guards around he knew that god would help them but he also knew that they had to help themselves it's no good no good sitting back and going god will do it for me you've got to go Lord, here's my concern, here's my prayer, I'm going to get on with this and do this in the meantime, and I hope that as I step out, you will provide the way forward, you will direct my life, you will shape what I do. God had given Nehemiah the wisdom of good judgment, and he expected him to use those gifts. Uh, Oliver Cromwell, key figure in one of the most troubled periods of British history, was known to have said this, wasn't he? Trust God, men, and keep your powder dry. Trust in God and keep... No good going into a battle with wet gunpowder. Trust in God, but keep your powder dry. You have a responsibility to be strategic in how you are and who you are to bring about God's uh, uh, plan in the end. 
I think that God calls us to be people of action. I, I, I don't know if you've ever met someone like this, but I, I think sometimes some Christians, they're so heavenly minded, they're of absolutely no earthly use whatsoever. It's like everything's up in, everything's up in the sky. And you go, well, feeding the hungry is practical. Visiting the prisoner means we've got to put feet to our faith. Caring, caring for the broken, walking with the wounded, whatever it might be, it means we've got to be people of action, not not just people of prayer. I'll, I'll pray about it. I'll pray. That's not what we're called to be. We are called to prayer, but but we're called to more than that. We're called to prayer, and we're called to action. Prayer and faith equals action. There is nothing admirable about incompetence. There's nothing holy about muddle and inefficiency, especially in the Christian church. The Christian church should be as thoroughly organized as it can be to do its work to its best potential, to enable us to reach and change this nation. We're to do the Lord's work with efficiency, We're we're not just to be content with how things are. We're to use our imagination and our flair and our vision. We're to be caring for one another and welcoming people amongst us. God calls us to be people of action. The fourth characteristic that emerges from Nehemiah's story is his, um, his, his good sense. He has this, he has this good sense to say, I know what God's called me to, and I'm not going to allow anybody to deflect me uh, from this. At the end of our reading, it says, When Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They asked. They were like the local mafia. They, they, They sought in every way possible to hinder Nehemiah's work. In fact, in a later chapter, they invite him to a meeting. They say, stop the work and come and meet with us, and we can talk about what you're doing. And he says, why should I stop? Why should I stop God's work just to meet uh, with you? You know, we're, we're to be people who are ensuring that we uh, are doing the right thing all the time, and not getting caught up in things we don't need to be caught up in. Um, uh, Nehemiah was prepared to say no. I think, I think that's um, uh, something that all of us need to learn in life. It's okay to say no. We're busy doing something else. It's okay to say no. It's a, we, we can't be omnipresent people. We'll burn out. It's okay to limit what we can do. There's an old saying, isn't there, that says if, you're, if your output exceeds your input, you dry up. And if your input exceeds your output, you blow up. Now, too much input, no action, we blow up. Too much output, not enough input, we dry up. We've got to have enough input to enable us to give the output. But there's always a balance. Enough input, enough output. If we've got input and output, then we're doing what God calls us to do. And Nehemiah had the sense to know that he needed that. And finally, uh, the, the fifth characteristic that for me emerges from this story is the spirit of resilience. 
the creativity under difficulty. Nehemiah, you see, had plenty of problems in his work of reconstruction. Uh, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem were uh, very substantial individuals. They were a continued challenge to the growth and progress of the work at Jerusalem. And um, uh, the sight of the devastation of Jerusalem spurred Nehemiah to activity. He, he, he heard when his brother told him of the wretched plight of the people. And, and, and he sees it. He sees that the, the issue of this wall broken down, of the people living amongst the ruins. And he's spurred into creativity. He's spurred into action. Chris is going to be talking a bit about that next week as he unpacks some of the different people that are involved in action in the rebuilding of this wall. And seems that Nehemiah had the ability to envision people from all backgrounds and include everybody in seeing this ultimate work be done. He refused to allow himself to be hindered. The difficulties he had to face were great, but his reaction was, let's just go and get on with the work. I was talking with my brother-in-law yesterday. We nipped down to Exeter for the day to see our uh, Lindsay's new great-nephew. No, that's, is that right? Great-nephew? Yeah, great-nephew. That's a little great-nephew. And we went down to see him, and we drove down there and drove back again. It was just glorious to see this little baby together. Um, and I was talking to my brother-in-law. It's always good to have a little chat with him. And, and uh, they go to a Baptist church down there. And, and he said that uh, uh, our, our niece, she sits there. She's, she must be 20, 20 years old, something like that anyway. She's about 20. And she says, he says she sits there in the sermon and someone will say something and she'll say, and your point is, and your point is, and your point is, well, what, what, what are you trying to say? Let's just get on and do it. Let's get on and be people of action. Let's be people who spur one another uh, on. Nehemiah refused to give up in the face of difficulty. What, where there is a problem in life, Nehemiah's thinking was, it can be solved. Let's not let the problem get us down. Let's be people of prayer and faith and action. Let's look for the solution. Let's live the formula. Let's find the correct result at the end. What's an obstacle or a discouragement in life but to be overcome? But to be overcome. No no one in their right mind would do what Nehemiah did and say, I'll just go and lead the people to rebuild all the walls of Jerusalem. No one would do that. It was a huge task. But Nehemiah's like, there's a problem, let's overcome it. Let's go and solve it. Do not pray for easier lives. Pray to be stronger people. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers, but pray for power equal to the task that God calls you to in life. And if you do that, if you do that and you live it, then you'll live a life that is fulfilled and satisfied because you'll be living a life in the light of God and what he calls you to. Let's be people of action. Prayer and faith equals action. It's a great formula to live by. And if you put that formula in place, 
in many of the characters throughout Scripture, you'll see it works very well. Let's stand, shall we? Father, thank you that you are a God who calls us, more than calls us, invites us to be people of action.